John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1403.PR1401, certificate number 51993. Marilyn Voss Savant. Yeah. Does it have any, any literal yeah, meaning? It's supposed to mean a wise man or something like that. Well, that's more that's a coincidence then, isn't it? Yeah, it's a hell of a coincidence, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, for the smartest person in the world to actually have that name. Yeah, right. Now, you know, you think I made it up, but I didn't. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. No, think you didn't think that. No, you were thinking negative of me, would you? <laughs> she actually says Vos Savant. She says Vos, Marilyn Vos Savant? She does. And it's she a, says Marilyn Vos Savant, or her grandfather said Marilyn Vos Savant? She says Marilyn Vos Savant, and it's her name-ish. I've been saying Marilyn Vos Savant. Since the 80s. I think I have too. Early 80s. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had your IQ tested? Have we ever talked about this on the show? Hmm. Answer the second question first. I think even by the time I had my IQ tested, it came with <clears throat> a bunch of asterisks uh, about how that it didn't, it didn't actually measure anything and was culturally biased and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, here's your... Here's your IQ. But they did give you some yeah. number? Yeah, I think so. I think I may have been the last... The last child ever tested the, for the, IQ? The last generation that was that was given like a... <clears throat> no, I think I was the first generation that did not get just a straight answer to your IQ question. It was... You, you got uh, one of a series of six adjectives? Yeah, or a number, but it was related to another number, and then there was a... There was a handicap, and then there was a, you know, a sort like of bowling. like bowling. If you if you get a strike <laughs> in your final frame, you have to do two more word puzzles, right? And if you get them both right, that's uh, you can get a perfect three hundred IQ. If I had if I had ever had an unambiguous IQ test, and they had given me a number, I think I would know it, and I would have it and if it was good. If, if it was, if oh, it was not right. good, maybe you would. If it was ninety eight or something, you would I'd forget. be like, "Oh, I don't know." But like your SAT test, you remember your SAT score? Yes, because your future hinges on that. Right. But nobody asks you about your. There's a number of websites. The IQ has become a thing that only serves people who join Mensa. Yeah, who want to remember their score for reasons of self-image or or socializing, I guess. But it's on a bell curve, right? So there's a or or. Or it's some kind. It's like the Richter scale. It's exponential or something. So 121 and 122 aren't just somebody who's 122 is a hundred times smarter than somebody who's 121. Uh, it is. It's not. It's not exponential, but it is a bell curve. Uh, 
as originally formulated, I mean, intelligence testing, there are roots of it that go back to the Chinese civil service exam where you had to demonstrate horsemanship and calligraphy and but these are not exactly the that's kinds exactly of exactly the, the, the thinking, IQ test that I took. That's because you were in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> How like, long can you stay on this polar bear? <laughs> can you build a trebuchet? <laughs> uh, I wish there was still horsemanship and calligraphy on yeah. the. But it's it's uh, as dreamed up in the early 20th century by a series of researchers. It's a it's a bunch of kind of abstract cognitive tasks that they thought of as a stand-in for good. School and professional performance. Were these like phrenologists and eugenicists that were coming <laughs> up with this? Because it sounds like a pseudoscience in that family. Is it not? Is it founded it, it's in cer- science? It's certainly been employed for that. I mean, the fact is there is pretty good research linking the, the measure they eventually standardized on, IQ, uh, with things like job performance, oh. for example. Oh. Um, but that could just be, there could be self-fulfilling prophecies there. You know, you for one thing, you tell a kid that he or she is smart, they perform accordingly. That's That's been demonstrated with math anxiety and things like that. Or, the, or it could just be that our society has tended to overvalue, has, has started to center around the things we test our, our kids on. But is, is, the, is the criticism that's commonly leveled against the SAT that it is culturally biased and, and um, <clears throat> the questions have a tendency to favor uh, – you know, middle-class white European kids. Is that also true of questions on the IQ test or does the IQ test have a sort of broader and and more culturally blind um, set of questions? There's still quite a bit of criticism. Um, And mostly it centers for, I mean, in the SAT, I think there were specific things about the the reading samples and stuff. Right. Like what does mom do when dad is off at work at the bank? (laughs) Does she A, is, is that multiple bake, choice? <laughs> B, what is that for math or verbal? What section is that even? B, does she shag the postman? On the C, uh, on the IQ test, uh, you know, in in theory, you're kind of manipulating symbols and shapes in a way that that one would hope would be divorced of of cultural uh, factors or parent parental income. So it's like um, how many like arrange these triangles in the shape of a bird type of thing. Here's a pattern of four grids. Uh, given or here's a series of four grids. Given the pattern you observe, what what which of these fifth grids should fill in the blank? I see. Um, given what these three shapes have in common, which of these four shapes would you add to the set? Oh, um, so it's all it's all uh, as to metaphor questions. Yes, there's bull is to cow as boy is to which exists on the SAT, and there is actually some of those analogies on the SAT, and those do have cultural impact. If you're asking about different kinds of animals, for example, uh, some inner city kid might have a harder time. Or, I mean, it's it's easy to it's it's really really difficult to strip culture out of this. The reason why IQ is often criticized on these grounds is because of some research, not all, but some, which has tried to make the case. this is just your crazy phrenologist and eugenicists, our, our old friends back again. Uh-huh, here they are. <laughs> that there is a racial disparity in IQ. And these people are very careful to say, no, I'm not saying we should strip away anyone's civil rights because of this. But as scientists, we must grapple with this fact. Right. And even if that gap does exist, it's possible to ask, is there a physiological brain explanation or could it be... Uh, socioeconomic. Right, cultural. socioeconomic. Is it the kind of... Uh, yeah. Cultural, is it the educational basis they had? 
We'll cover um, that on our other podcast, the After Dark podcast, phrenologists and uh, and eugenicists. If you give it the, I promise not to cancel you on Twitter level. You too can listen to John say terrible things about people's IQ. Uh, IQ the Q stands for quotient. So right. as as originally standardized, you have to know what quotient means to, to have a good IQ. That's the first question. Oh. What does IQ stand for? <laughs> have you seen the Walter Matthau Meg Ryan movie? IQ, who plays the male romantic lead? John? Uh, Tom Hanks. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's Tim uh, Robbins. It's a Tim Robbins. It's a, it's a lower budget 90s Tom Hanks. Tim Robbins. Was it was his nickname Mother? <laughs> he's very tall. He's, he he's tall. too tall for Meg Ryan. Uh, that's the movie where Walter Matthau plays Einstein with appalling results. Oh, I've, I remember that. I remember the posters for that. I didn't see it. But uh, the real IQ, the Q stands for quotient because two things are being divided. It's supposedly a ratio of someone's... Uh, intellectual age, you know, the, the oh, age, right? Over what their chronological age is. So, if if they got the average IQ test score of a twenty-two year old and they were seventeen, then their IQ is twenty-two over seventeen divided by hundred, which I can't do in my head because I'm not Marilyn Vosavant. You're pretty good at that kind of math, though. But you can see that if you multiply by hundred, it's an average. Right. The average score will be a hundred. 22 divided by 17. <laughs> this is <a> hypothetical. <laughs> times 100. It's an IQ of 129. That's a very good IQ. In fact, that would be the 96th percentile. Now, what what happens when you are 50? You can't possibly have an IQ. You can't you can't you can't say <laughs> I'm as smart as a 70-year-old. I mean, the 70-year-old is going to go down, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So, so an IQ is a test that you can only really give to Your someone gets negative. who's between the ages of 16 and, and 20. This, right? And this is what it was for. It was an educational placement test. It was like, you know, which of you losers goes to vocational school, basically. And it's a very blunt instrument for that kind of thing, but that's how it got wielded. And right. as I've said, I mean, if you hang out with smart people, even something as dumb as like, who's good at trivia, these are also that people that it's pretty dumb. Like, I think you and I know it's a pretty dumb field of achievement that only <laughs> that only a weirdo would attempt. But if you hang out a lot in that field, because not you're not only dumb, but you have few friends. Right. Uh, like, these are all high IQ people. Careful, it doesn't, careful you're talking to the futurelings now. <laughs> no. The futurelings all are uh, have jobs and families. Sure, their tendrils are all intermingled with other futurelings. <laughs> uh, you'll see that these are clinically measurably smart people. It's not just that they've memorized a bunch of facts for whatever reason, all these different kinds of intellectual performances do tend to overlap a bit. And that doesn't mean that IQ, it doesn't mean that we mean one thing by intelligence. And as all your asterisks said, it doesn't mean that, that this single division problem determines your destiny in life, but it's also not arbitrary. It, it does. It is measuring something about the brain and about the person. Here's how, the bell curve of IQ works. If 100 is the average, it's a pretty narrow band. Like, I guess the test is granular enough to capture a lot of differences because 69 to 70% of all test takers are between 85 and 115. They're within 15 IQ points of average. And what what is the what is regarded as the <clears throat> um, the right age, the right moment to measure a child? I, I think it doesn't... If you, if it's that it's that thing they used to do to us in grade school, they're like, "You're reading at the ninth grade level, and you're only in fifth grade," and it's like, "Well, what does that mean? I'm reading what at the ninth grade level?" The only time I've ever taken taken a test like this, I was five years old, and my mom was trying to get me into the the 
I think I've said this on the show, into the gifted and talented, whatever the highly capable elementary school in North Seattle was. And what happened? She took me down to UW and I had to sit in a room with some, I don't know, at the time I thought of them as scientists, but I'm sure they were just dumb grad students. Did they tie a banana to the ceiling with a rope and <laughs> yeah, put exactly. a ladder in the corner? They leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> the monkey beat me on all the tests. No, it was like, here's a series of blocks, like uh, make, a, make the right pattern with the colors, now make the right pattern with the shapes. Right. It was a Simpsons episode, basically. And I know, like my mom remembers one story I don't, which is like, she's watching through two-way glass. And at one point- They shocked the, you with a hundred volts. <laughs> that was before they brought her in. Uh, they asked me, and I don't understand how this is part of an IQ test. So maybe this is some other research that somebody's doing at UW. Did they ask you if you like gladiator movies? <laughs> Put a hanky in your pocket. Mm, wrong pocket. They asked me uh, where the Wright brothers' first flight was. Oh, that's not divorced of cultural context. That's you, not innate intelligence. You were five years old. I was five years old. And I don't even look up. I'm playing with whatever. And I'm like, Kitty Hawk. And my mom was like, well, first of all, my mom was like, he's not going to know this. And then I'm like, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. <laughs> and she was like, wow. Oh. So. Did she give you the car keys as you left? Yeah, she tossed them. To you me. drive home. <laughs> Maybe I read the mind of the uh, test administrator. It's like the the test from Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. It was one of the bending spoon. Zener cards and whatnot. So did you get into the dig program? Is that what it was called? I think so. That seems in right. Shoreline in the 1970s That's or what, 80s. Were you also a, a, a dig? I'm afraid I was in the dig program. You were digging the frog? I was. Yes. I went to Stephen Decatur Elementary, which is now, mm, what is it called now? View Ridge Elementary? No, nah, it's something up there in Northeast Seattle, though. Um, so I did get into the program, but if they ever gave me a number to measure that, I don't know. And to this day, I don't, I've, I've never taken a, a- You never had a, an IQ test. No, which is dumb because they're always, you know, I could have, at the age of- 14, I could have opened Omni magazine and yeah. and taken some test or Scientific American or whatever. It but. seems like a question you would have been asked a lot in the last 20 years. Yeah, it, uh, IQ is something I'm pretty much over because it's every, it really shows that even though it's, it's, kind, it's not something that's administered much by academics anymore, it's, yeah. it's now kind of belongs to this subculture of self-identifying high IQ people who love to talk about their own IQs. Yeah. It, it, the general public is still fascinated by it. The idea of it without anyone really understanding what it means. Yes. Like after Jeopardy, people wanted to know what my IQ was, as as if that would relate to game show achievement. I mean, it's probably linked, but it's not the same thing. And do you have a perception that, like, for instance, 129 is a high IQ? If you If someone were to say just out of the blue, like... I have 129 IQ. If someone were to say just out of the blue, I have 129 IQ, would you think... Like, oh, or are, do you think 140 is like are impressive? They, are, are they doing the poetry slam thing as they do? As they ask? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, the tendency is to think, oh, well, that's only 30 points over average. That's not, that's not super good. But as you're, as you've said, it, it's kind of not unlike the Richter scale because it's a bell curve of, of the human population. 96% of all human beings are between 70 and 130. So you're top 4%. Right. To get into Mensa, you have to be top two percentile IQ test. You have to, so one in one in, you have to be one in 50, I guess. One uh, out of 50 people. Yes. You have to be the smartest in the, on, in an average room of 50 people. And what is that an IQ? How, what is the number that that represents to get into Mensa? But based on the people I've talked to who claim to be in Mensa, it's got to be a pretty low bar. There are different, uh, the 98th percentile falls in a different place for different varieties of IQ testing. On the standard standard Stanford Binet test, 
you have to be 132 or higher. Mm-hmm. There's another test called the cattle, cattle, where you have to be at a 148. So oh. that's kind of the easier. That's like the uh, kids trivial pursuit version uh-huh. of the test. I 148. Guess. I mean, I, I feel like 148 sounds pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if you take both tests, tell people the higher number. <laughs> 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 and that's something that'll play into the, our story today of, of Marilyn Vos Savant, or possibly Marilyn Vos Savant. Marilyn, what are we going to settle on? Marilyn Voss Savant? I've heard her say Voss. So I'm Voss. Gonna, I'm okay, gonna say she Voss. said Voss. But David Letterman said Voss. When Letterman so I follow her. Letterman. <laughs> In almost all things, I Le- follow Letterman. Letterman is my, is my, my lodestar. Once my mind starts to go, I will follow Paul Schaefer. Yeah, well, sure. Um, in, uh, in the 1980s, when we were young people interested in this kind of thing, we were, you and I were both fascinated by Marilyn Voss Savant. Yes. She came out of nowhere and suddenly in the uh, mid to late 80s had a column every week in Parade Magazine. Parade, the magazine with the widest circulation in the world and in history. 50 million people were reading the columns in Parade at its peak in the 80s and 90s. Have we explained Parade Magazine before? I don't know. You were a columnist in Parade Magazine, which was maybe your most impressive accomplishment (laughs) as far as I was concerned. A hundred (laughs) percent. Like my tombstone is going to say parade columnist. And then if you move the grass aside, it says Jeopardy champion. But this was the, uh, the 80s, this was the, the, the heyday of parade when parade magazine was, was a thick and, and like chock full. It was like, it was a glossy color magazine, but it came with your Sunday paper. So right. it's like the prize in a, in a box of Cracker Jack. Right. It was like, a, it was like a, the album you got free when you went to a Prince concert. <laughs> Except that implies you maybe don't want it. Uh, well, it's like the U2 album that appears on your iPhone. That's what it is. That's a closer analogy. <laughs> no, I think it was good. Like you would go to the comics first. And then you'd maybe the, you know, the sports page, depending on what kind of kid you were. Maybe no, a, I went right to Walter Scott's personality parade. So yeah, you're, you're speaking my language. <laughs> Parade magazine had beloved features like Walter Scott's Personality Parade, which was not written by a uh, Scottish author, Scottish laird, Sir Walter Scott. <laughs> it was written by a guy named Lloyd Shearer, and it was just celebrity gossip. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is that I believe Walter Scott's Personality Parade exists today, which means that even in the age of the internet, people are still writing in to say, settle a bet, Walter. Is Paul Linda live? Or uh, did our Miss Brooks uh, come on radio first or was it on TV first? Settle a bet with my sister. Uh, and it's online. Walter Scott's personality parade is a, is like a is like a uh, parade, chat room. Parade still, <laughs> yeah. Walter's uh, hitting on all the the hot young fans. Uh, it's still parade still comes in Sunday newspapers for people who get Sunday newspapers. Well, so I've seen this this uh, this toilet paper that claims to be Parade Magazine now. Careful, and, this is a and it this is, is an existing publication. It is, I'm sure they're bleeding subscribers, but they can still sue us for defamation. It's nothing at all. It's like it, it's it, it's like on fax paper, and <laughs> it has like four you, pages. You, you read it once, and it burns like a Mission Impossible tape. <laughs> it used to be like a it used to be a real tabloid. This is true of all newspapers, John. Yeah, I guess so. Like, th- did you see this number this year alone? Something like half of all newsroom employees in America have lost their jobs in 2020. It's like half of all media jobs have disappeared since January, mostly due to, to the pandemic economic service. Last night I watched, um, the movie, the post, um, the Spielberg Spielberg movie about about the Washington post. No, it was about the Pentagon papers. Oh, you're right. And it, um, 
you know, it depicts... It ends with Watergate. It, it, that's the very end, the little teaser, like, what do we do now? Um, but it's the it's all this newsroom stuff from the early 70s, but before President's Men era, you know, like like real old school newspaper. But some of the best footage is down in the... Down in the print room, watching the watching the press turn out the Washington Post and the it was downstairs in the building. Yeah, when the when the when the machine went on, the, the building shook. You could tell when the edition was being printed because your the your water glass vibrated. And you've got a red button that says "Stop the presses." Ah, uh, and I, and I, I, like tears streaming down my face at the at and and oh, it was watching the typesetters. I guess was the thing that that made me feel the most emotional. The idea that somehow we can't afford to pay journalists now, but there was a time in recent memory where we employed dozens of people to put lead type together to make a newspaper. And they only had they only had minutes to do it. Yeah, every day, <laughs> every they, day they pulled twice type, a day sometimes type out of a out of a drawer and made a newspaper, and that somehow seemed like it was. And they had to because millions of people were waiting. It was, and the, oh, and when the trucks went pulling out, the headed trucks, in all direction oh across town, throwing the newspapers out at, at dawn. I can't even watch Zodiac, any movie set in a newsroom now. It, it's the amazing pathos of how they don't know. Yeah. Like they don't know what's about to happen to no the public idea, sphere. No idea that this is not going to be forever. D- did you ever want to work? And, and how fragile it is. Like <sighs> all it takes is a bunch of furniture uh, dealerships. Furniture doesn't have dealerships. A bunch yeah. of furniture oh, stores furniture to decide they're not taking out ads anymore. And suddenly, that, it turns out that's what it was all about. Yeah. Or people right. stopping selling iguanas and bicycles. Yeah. Pontiac dealerships. Yeah. Did you want to be a reporter? I really wanted to work in a newsroom and and sort of- You, you got to remember your newspaper and I'm your book. Oh, right. That's the big gap between us. Right. Yeah, that's why we can never be friends. Newspaper versus yearbook. That's why I had to make this table an extra two feet long. Because I still love typesetting. Keep you over there. But to me, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of design. There's a lot of. I'm a stylist, I think, because yeah. of that. No, I was all about layout. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, well, we do share that then. But but I did have. Uh, but I you know I was like five minutes to deadline, just uh, cranking out you know editing other people's articles, getting them into the paper. Oh, it's just like so exciting. In the uh, I miss it now. In the early in the early two thousands, parade was still a going concern, even though people thought of it as a as a funny old person's thing. Yeah. it was still in every paper in every city. And so I still read every it, page of it. Oh, sure, you had to find out uh, whether uh, Walter Scott could tell you if Billy Zane has any new projects. Sure, what's going on with the guy that plays Urkel? I want to know. <laughs> and when I got that quiz in Parade. It, they were absolutely right about the kind of the the millions and millions of eyeballs they had. At one point, I had a new book out, and it was a they they managed to link it to their cover story in Parade. It was about um, parenting myths. It was just a dumb pop reference trivia book. Yeah, but it was at the same time that a Christmas story was playing on Broadway. So they did a cover story, kind of a shoot you'll shoot your eye out uh, kind of a cover story that that hyped my book. And my book was on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list, like at number seven wow. w- within within a week. Fantastic. As late as whatever that is, 2011 or something, that's the power of Parade. And what was your column called? Connections. It was just oh. a- Oh, so you still do I do it. I do it for Mental Floss. Parade later got bought by, um, I think, some Tennessee or Kentucky-based player in the Sunday supplement space. 
and got rid of all their editorial and columnists with one exception. And so did you and the other columnists like meet in some wood paneled room in, in Manhattan every six months to spill uh, bourbon on each other? I've been to their office once, which I think was on sixth Avenue where all the, where all publishing is. It, they were Condé Nast before I got sold, I think. Condé Nast? Some other, some other big, maybe Condé Nast. And, but I never got to hang out with, say, Marilyn. But, oh. she, but she very much has a midtown penthouse, uh, doing the foxtrot at the club, uh, wood-paneled room kind of a lifestyle. She's an anachronism in, in several different ways. But I, but I remember mentioning her once, just as a joke. I was like, do I get to meet Walter Scott? And they're like, oh, we bought, we bought the rights to that name in, in 1990-whatever. And then I was like, what about Marilyn? And they were like, oh, Marilyn, like... You know, it was almost like she was the, um, what's the name of the Devil Wears Prada? She's like the Anna Wintour of... Oh, Parade. Yes, yeah, she's like the <laughs> the idol, the icon, and the diva, you know... Did they all have Mistress a, a, Maiden Crone, a, a, all at once. A story about her sweeping through the lobby? Uh. I didn't ask for anybody's Marilyn Vosavander, which is good. It's rare for us to do a podcast about a living person, mm-hmm. which we are doing right now. Uh, but it, it was clear that there was a, there was a lot of fear and, and trembling and admiration mixed in the building for for the world's smartest person. Because that's how her column was built. This right. was the world's smartest person, and you would send her letters, and it could be about statistics, or it could be about your love life or weather, and, and her high IQ would allow her to answer all these questions uh, infallibly, was the premise. It was like she was the Pope now. And I, I examined that column very closely. You know, I fine-toothed combed it like I did a lot of media. Why? Because I wanted to see if her high IQ did enable her to give good advice across a broad spectra. Because at the age of 16, I knew already that there was a difference between being able to, you know, answer a uh, actuarial question and answer a question about, you know, how to, how to come out to your, to your bigoted grandfather. Well, plus you didn't trust authority of any kind, right? At sixteen, no, I was, I was, I was looking in all corners for cracks in the in the system, and I was routinely impressed by Marilyn Vos Savant's abilities to. I too was impressed by Marilyn Vos Savant. Yeah, uh, that was the thing. She seemed. I was extremely suspicious of her because I had never heard of her. She was apparently the world's smartest person, but I, I had never read about her credentials or achievements in any other she form. Did, she's not there because she's a great physicist or because she invented a, a new kind of water wheel. She has no Tonys. She has none of these Royal Tenenbaums type accomplishments. Right. Inst- no book on the charts. The world's smartest person has become essentially an advice columnist for the same Sunday supplement that runs, you know, tips for washing your dog. Right. Shouldn't she be working for the government in some kind of DARPA uh, like classified, uh, like bra- right protect, brain science thing. Like keep Maryland from the Soviets. Yeah, exactly. Protect Maryland vos savant at all costs. Plus, and uh, th- this is the thing about her. Her picture is kind of glamorous. Yeah, she's a she's a uh, pretty lady. It's a headshot of a pretty lady defying everything you think you know about um about science and nerds in 1986. Well, my mom was a pretty lady who was also a science nerd. So you weren't surprised. You did, She kind of looks like my mom. So I was like, oh, sure. Right. The smartest person in the world is basically like a <laughs> slightly, uh, <laughs> slightly younger, prettier version of my mom. I knew it. <laughs> That's what I thought too. I was like, hey, it's like John's mom. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey watch it. Uh, the <laughs> And the other thing about her, of course, that we've kind of danced around is her name is Marilyn. Come on. 
Vos or Vos, Savant. Come on. Come on. I don't, I don't know. I, it, it was two weeks after I read her column for the first time that I went, wait a minute. I don't think I knew the word savant yet. Maybe I knew the phrase idiot savant. But the fact that savant kind of means thinker or genius, right. that's just not going to happen. If Thomas Edison was named Thomas Lightbulb Innovator, you'd right. be like, wait a second. <laughs> so everything about her struck oh, me as... Thomas Lightbulb Innovator. <laughs> it's, got, it's got a hyphen. He's English. But did you have this idea that everything about her seemed li- seemed suspect? Completely. Yeah, the the headshot seemed fake. The name seemed fake. The concept seemed fake. And her advice seemed. The problem with parade is that everything is so condensed. It's the it's such a digest. Yes. That, somebody asks a tricky question, and she has sixty words. Right, sixty words, and so there's not a ton of like it, like Miss Manners, for instance. Like my, I think the my pantheon in 1984 <laughs> was. Miss Manners, Marilyn Vossavant, Dave Barry. Did you read uh, Dear Abby? Uh, Dear Abby I was and a, and uh, uh, we never got Ann Landers and Ann Landers. I read them both. You had to get the Times and the PI if you wanted. Well, because yeah, we had and in Anchorage there was a morning paper and an afternoon uh, paper okay. too. So I read all of these columnists, and some of them had, you know, Miss Manners. Her personality really was in her column a lot more than Dear Abby or or Ann Land. Did you have that thing that uh, psychopath thing where you thought she was talking to you? Did you have pictures of Miss Manners up in your room? No, but I did buy her book when it came out, yeah. the first Miss Manners guide. And uh, Miss Manners is going to be a future omnibus topic. Oh, I'm right? gonna I'm gonna talk about her at great length. So my, if, if you found the complete omnibus, dig through the time capsule now to find out what John thinks about Miss Manners. My copy of of Miss Manners guide. Uh, was like a Bible to me. I, it, it is so it is so dirty and torn apart, threadbare. Every page turned over, the corner turned over. It is funny how smart kids have those books. They read so much that their grubby little thumbprints are on yeah. the are on the page side, and the spine is cracked. It seems insane to me now that it would be Miss Manners' Guide to uh, I forget exactly the title, but. It had some, you know, but it was Victorian like title, dinner etiquette, and that kind of yeah, thing. yeah, that type of stuff. And I just, I never got enough of it. Um, but, but Marilyn Vos Savant or Vos Savant, I didn't. You're cracking. I didn't get enough of her personality because they're because the columns were so condensed. She didn't have a whole quarter of the page to work it out, and she didn't aphorize that much, right? right? I mean, she they're very straightforward. And in interviews with her, she has said that that her editors at Parade just trimmed her stuff mercilessly. She really had a lot to say. And they were like, Marilyn, you know how this column works. Why, you, why? You, you've got, you've got like four <laughs> inches. I mean, what do you, why didn't she put them all out in, as a book? Why didn't she? Uh, I believe there was a book collection at some point, but it was, they were not expanded. Um, yeah, we should, we should think about the limitations of Marilyn Vos Savant. Uh, in fact, all the stuff that I thought about her was fake was a hundred percent true. Really? She was born Marilyn Mock in St. Louis in the 1940s. She was a descendant of... Uh, Mach, M-A-C-H? Yeah, Mach. Descendant of Ernst Mach, in fact, the, oh. the physicist who, who we remember today every time we hear a sonic boom. The, mm-hmm. the, the ratio of, speaking of ratios, the ratio of uh, the speed of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so she had smart genes, but she was uh, born to immigrant parents, uh, uh, Italian, German, Austrian. Uh, do they still say bohunk in the Midwest? Are you, yes. are you allowed to say that, or is I, that a slur? I think you can still say bohunk. Central European, Czech, Czech, Czech or Slovak uh, ancestry. And in fact, her her mother's maiden name was Savant. Oh. And in fact, her grandmother, Marilyn says, had gone by Vos Savant. Oh. Now, this is a mystery to me, because 
Maryland styles it with a small V as right. if it were van Vaughan. or Vaughn. Yeah. And the implication is that it means of savant or something in some European language. And as far as I can tell, it does not. There is no such language in which vos savant with a small v is a thing. Was it one word, vos savant? Uh, it's possible that she does not include Dutch among her ancestors. She does include German. Vos, V-O-S-S, is a not uncommon German name. And V-O-S with one S is the Dutch equivalent. Uh-huh. It's one of the most common names in Dutch, it means fox, Wolf. I believe, in both languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, her name is twice as clever. It's it's, it's smart like a fox. Yeah, or, wow. Or foxy and smart. Foxy and smart. I guess. Or fox smart, um, which is something we say all the time. But she did not come from a, a big palatial, uh, a magnificent Amberson-style Midwestern mansion with a brick tower. She Her parents owned dry cleaners. Mm. And I'm sure that was a good living, but she, like her mother, was married by the time she was 16 years old. And she's from the St. Midwest. St. Louis. Uh-huh. Uh, she married at 16. She's got two kids by the time she's in her 20s and has taken a few classes at Washington University. You know, she got into Washington University, but she's she's dropped out. And, uh, you know, she, she is not on the fast track to stardom in any way. Um Around sometime in her late twenties, maybe around thirty, uh, her marriage is falling apart. She leaves her husband. She moves to New York with her kids and starts a new life. She's very vague about this period in her life in interviews, but uh, apparently she she gives up the dry cleaning business for investment. She turns her mm-hmm. she turns her gifted brain to stocks. So now, just to recap, she's in her early thirties. She has two kids. Two, you know, youngish kids. Yes. Recently divorced from a dry cleaning uh, legacy and on her own with no college degree gets into investment and moves to New York with two young kids as a single mother. Yeah, it's true. It's remarkable. And I kind of believe it because I think this is kind of like I have seen this outsider's path to solvency before the person without the degree who starts who starts day trading or figures out how to flip houses or, or, you know, whatever the, whatever the investment thing is. Wait, are you and I about to, to start running a, a, a series of conferences in. in That's exactly right. You've seen our infomercials (laughs) and now it's time for the low price of $199. John and I will send you our tapes. That's right. The, the, the strange path to solvency, the self starter, the millionaire next door. Do you have, did you get free Mac Weldon's? Uh, I do wear Mack Weldon stuff. I'm not wearing their undergarments, but I ordered, what did I order? A sweater and a Henley. And one thing I've been impressed with is they hold up really well. Like, I think it must be high quality stuff because you know, how you buy, you buy cheap clothes somewhere and you know, they don't last. They're a different size uh, yeah. a week later and not in very good shape three months later. But the, the Mack Weldon stuff holding up great. I've been fortunate enough to, um, to have had a relationship with Mac Weldon now for several years. So I have Mac Weldon with, with things. The, with the guy himself? You, uh, no, you, are, Mac and I have never met. Is there a Mac? I doubt it. You think it's like Chef Boyardee? I think I think it's like Mac, like yo, yo, Mac Weldon. You're Mackin on these delicious underwears. What does Weldon mean then? Uh, it's you're well done. You're oh. well done if you're Macking in these underwear. But I have like. I misunderstood. I thought it was a designer. Over time, I got rid of, little by little, got rid of my old sort of 
underwear, cheap underwear. Not I never bought cheap underwear. I bought nice underwear, but underwear that just was not in the same caliber and started wearing Mack Weldon. And then I started buying Mack Weldon socks, which I think are great. And um, now I, most of my undergarments come from Mack Weldon and they hold up really well. Do you wear the overgarments like I do? You should try them. So overgarments are trickier with me because I have such a, I mean, Mack Weldon underwear and socks really comport with my sense of style. Mm. When I walk around the house in my stripy boxer briefs and sort of contrasting stripy socks. You're daddy Mack Weldon. I am. And the, and ladies love Mack Weldon, but, uh, but you know, the over stuff is Mack Weldon stuff tends to be a little sportier. Well, I like it. I'm pretty preppy. You're very sporty. I like the design. I think the fabrics are really good. And it's, they're super easy. I mean, the thing about the website is it's super easy to it really shop is. there. And if, really you, if you find shopping for clothes troublesome, as I do, uh, you will enjoy the simplicity of Mack Weldon's website. Yeah. One of the nice things it does is that, that the discount is, the, it, when they offer you a discount, it is, um, it kind of accrues exponentially in the sense that the more you, the more things you put in your shopping cart, the greater the discount. So you can actually kind of get to a place where it's almost cheaper to get one more thing because the discount just keeps applying. That's how they get you. You're describing the Weldon Blue loyalty program for Mac Weldon's loyal customers who may value so much. You just create a free account on their website. And then at level one, if you're at level one, you you can place an order for any amount and you'll never pay for shipping again. Which is great. Yeah. So level two, once you've purchased $200 worth of product, you'll keep getting the free shipping forever, but you'll also start saving 20% per order for the next year. It's kind of like an airline loyalty thing. Totally cool. And level two also grants you access to new products before they're released to anyone else and free gifts on future orders. That's kind of one of the cool things because they'll send you, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny to think like, oh, these are underwear that no one else has, but um, but that you do get emails periodically. It's like, oh, this is a thing that's coming out. You know, Mack Weldon is the one that has garments that are woven with silver thread, uh. and it works as an antibacterial. But I believe even more that it is a kind of super um, undergarment. I wear my silver underwear on special occasions when I feel like I need to have that extra. We don't want to imply that it'll make you bulletproof. No, 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 no. I'm not we making don't pe- any. We don't want people to do anything, but it, but they it can't hurt. No, it's not going to cure you of having like a small wiener uh, to wear silver underpants. Your wiener is going to stay the same size. But it'll be Probably. covered. But it'll be covered in silver thread. Probably. For That's tw- all I'm saying. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com right now and enter promo code Omnibus. That's 20% off your first order. You don't have to spend $200 to trigger this 20%. No, you get, you get free shipping no matter what your first order is. And this is MacWeldon.com promo code Omnibus. So I think she might actually be a legitimate case of this. What she doesn't, what she really wants to do is write. She thinks of herself as a creative person. And, and apparently very quickly she accumulates an, enough of a nest egg that she can try it. In investments? Uh, That's so vague. Has has there been independent confirmation of her story? Did anybody do, really? Do, do we need to go to the SEC did, and look at her portfolio? Did anybody really go after her on this? I mean, it's if her parents have a, a few dry cleaning stores, yeah, yeah, she's in, got a little bit. Of may, a maybe they've cushion. given her a cushion. Uh, maybe she came out okay in the divorce. Okay, All right. um, I, I'm starting to. Yeah, if you've got a little bit of family help, you can move to New York in the 1970s. 
It's e- cheap, then. Even though she's not that prone to mythologizing her life, she does not talk about her being a young person much. You have to find old interviews where she's she's kind of fresh on the other side of it. Right. And she's a uh, a fairly glamorous and popular figure. She's obviously smart and eligible, and she soon has a lot of successful, smart friends, um, one of whom recommends uh, that she start... You know, you're so smart, Marilyn. She, at the age of 10 years old, her IQ was tested for some school thing, and her chronological age was in the early 20s. Wow. So according to this kind of flawed measurement, that's an IQ of 228, wow. which uh, is superhuman. And, you know, this is something that I think comes up in conversation with her, not not infrequently. And her friends tell her, you know, there's Mensa. And there's not just Mensa, but there's all these, you know, Mensa's for chumps. There's all these higher-end there are premium Mensa's? Well, Mensa only let, Mensa lets in one out of every 50 people. Right. And so, if at once a premium product exists, people will try to produce a higher priced version of it for a smaller and therefore more elite audience. What are the what are the Mensa's that you don't hear about? There's one called the Mega Society, and as oh, you might suspect from the What an idiotic name. From the Latin root here. <laughs> the Mega Society. They are, they all weigh 500 pounds. <laughs> no, mega uh, from the Greek root, you know, it's it's what yeah. you, wait, Greek? Yeah, Greek, yeah. right? Megabyte, it would be one million. These people are literally, have to, they literally have to be in the point zero 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 one percentile. I think I missed a zero. Um, they have to be one in a million. And some of these, there's one called, the, and a bunch of these have started up because there tends to be a lot of infighting in subcultures like this. So there's now seven of these organizations. One called the Titan Society only had, as, uh, I think, 15 members. Or at least did the last time I read a profile of them. That's how. That's just how elite they are. None of them have you ever heard of, or well, but, and maybe that's even better. You want to be in the fifteen smartest people on earth that no one's ever heard that of. No one's ever heard of you. It's like Davos. Yeah, but what are you? But right, you want to be one of those people if no one's ever heard of you because you're uh, because you're a secret operative for the Rand Corporation. <laughs> Not that no one's ever heard of you because you run a dry cleaners in St. Louis. At the time, in 1986, uh, a guy named Jeff Ward is in the Guinness Book of World Records for the highest IQ. Uh, And I've read a profile of him, and he is your quintessential Mensa member. He has dabbled in so many things. He had a government job for a while, you know, some kind of clerk. He's he's done his own private investments. Built a trebuchet. His marriage has recently broken up, but he's looking, ladies. That seems to be a common theme. I mean, this guy has the world's highest IQ, and he appears to not have a day job. Um, and maybe that's what defines his smartness. But there is certainly a type of, of high IQ person for whom that does not translate into traditional achievement. Sure. And you can see why that Stop is. Stop flattering I mean, me. <laughs> well, I'm not thinking of you. And, like, you're the, you're the success story. You're, you're so. successful in multiple fields. These are people who were told as kids that they would be successful in multiple fields. And that's a terrible straitjacket. I mean, that's... That's a tough thing to do to a kid on both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's become a trope in our culture thanks to, you know, the William H. Macy quiz kid figure in Magnolia or the kids in the Royal Tenenbaums. You know, they were all treated like little Fabergé eggs and they were, you know, all it takes is one heroin addiction or, 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 one, or one class they suddenly don't get or one teacher who suddenly insists on giving them Bs because... For yeah. reasons of their own. You know, it doesn't take much for that train to hit a wall. And then there's the issues with other people. I mean, 
my youngest sister is like 10 years younger than me. So she's not quite in the same ecosystem. But my, I have a younger brother, a younger sister within five years of me. And they are both incredibly gifted, capable people now. And they were as kids. They were super high achieving kids in school. And yet every time they had a class, it was like, oh, I had your brother two years ago. I mean, it's if the it's a traditional younger child thing, but if the older child was kind of head of the class, right. it's even worse Hard for to those. And that's been, I think that I never thought about it at the time because I was never in the room when those follow-up conversations happened. Right. I was just out in front making trouble for them. But right. like that, that cannot have been easy for them. Luckily, nope. I, luckily, I never added insult to injury as an adult. Well, and it also works depending on how big your community is. If your father makes a big splash or your ah, mother is a popular yeah. person in the town, everywhere you go, you're, you're you, in you, their shadow. You've benefited by that. Well, was sure. It, but, was it hard in ways? But a lot of expectation everywhere you go, kind of like, oh, you're, you know, so-and-so's son. Well, step right up. I, I was... I I was at some event at a museum one time when I was about 10 years old and some grown up brought two other little boys about my age over and, um, and said, you're in a sailor suit and said, we were all in sailor suits. We were, yeah, we were 17, but, uh, uh, and she said kind of to the room, she said, look, you know, here are the few or the three future governors of Alaska because we were all three of us scions of some Alaskan political family. And I looked at these two other kids, and they were both like just drooling, thumb sucking dopes. But they, but they came, you know, they had big names, right? They were like uh, big Alaska political names, and I, I felt that kind of like three sided shame of like I'm not like these ding dongs. Also, now I'm embarrassed because kind of my family name is the. The lowest of the three in terms oh, of right? the accomplishments of the grandfather, <laughs> right? And so now I'm the I'm like the redheaded stepchild here, and also it was clear already that I was also a loser. So was was there an age at which you had really good grades before you decided the system was? Oh yeah, I mean I was the teacher's pet and the and the set the curve until. And, you know, it came early for me. Because, yeah, we've talked about your middle school. Uh, yeah, it was third or third grade was my last triumphant year. And that was when the scales fell from my eyes about how adults didn't know what they were doing and were all liars. <laughs> and after third grade, I stopped. In, starting in fourth grade, I said, grades are fake. Adults are liars. What's What are they going to do to me? If, if you had I just don't? been a little more docile. Yeah. You would be working at Texas Instruments right now. But it was the test scores that kept me uh that that kept the adults afraid of me all the way through school. You know, I I graduated last in my class, but I was a national merit scholar. And so they couldn't, you know, you can never just throw a kid in a dumpster if every time you give him a standardized test the the test indicates that this kid should be at the top of your group of kids. And so and that was that was my superpower, right? I could, I got like Fs, but but they couldn't throw me away. Well, you're you so the, your your uh, relative here, this kind of troubled but um, but very gifted guy named Jeff Ward was was in the Guinness Book of World Records for his high IQ. Good old Jeff, I want to meet up with him. And I hope uh, he's still alive. and Marilyn's friends tell her, hey, uh, your IQ. I guess she had recently been tested again and was on, on one of these tests got a two thirty nine. Well, now explain that because she's now in her mid thirties. 
Yeah. How does that work? Now I think it's no longer, now it's no longer a ratio. Now you're, it's where you fit into some curve. You know, once you have a certain number of results, you can figure out a percentile and approximate a number. And I think for the one on which she's 239, I mean, there's some debate about both these scores. Because the 228 one is she's 10 years old and that's not really how IQ works just because she could do story problems like a 22-year-old. Right. Uh, She knew where the Wright brothers had their first flight. (laughs) Right. That doesn't mean anything, Marilyn. And then at 239, I think that was kind of a small sample size. So people have poked holes in that. But she's got verified tests that put her at the very top of human achievement. So she's uh, she joins all seven of the uh, of the super high IQ societies in America. The Mega Society and the and the uh, the Titan and the the, Titan the and Institute the... of Philosophical Excellence. Or, sure. And she's the one of only two people in America to do so. And a, and a friend contacts Guinness on her behalf and says. You've got Jeff Ward with his 187 or whatever. Do you know about my friend Marilyn? And suddenly the 1985 or something Guinness Book of World Records comes out and Marilyn Vosavon is listed in the as the world's smartest person. Even and, though no one has tested anyone in India or China. Or, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and, and their method seems to be to get a friend to call in on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Guinness is doing this. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's some lady in China who's like, you know, uh, totally like weaving a whole neighborhood out of out of butterfly wings. She's like looking at a bowl of rice and she's like 1,806,276 grains. Uh yeah, you could it, it wouldn't kill you to call Guinness on my behalf, John. Would you oh, would yeah. you do so? What would I say? No, they actually retired. Weren't the, you were in the Guinness Book of World Records? Uh, I think so, yeah, for longest game show, U.S. game show streak or, or something like how that. How many editions, how many different years were you in the... I don't if, I were, if I'm going to go to a thrift store, which one do I I don't have up? a single paper copy that has me in it, so it may, maybe I'm asterisk website only. <laughs> but you do have copies of the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, sure. I've got like a 1964 one I lifted from my grandpa's house when he died. Also totally uh, thumbed through. And oh, yeah. That's probably me as a kid, actually. Stains. Uh, the... Uh, Parade Magazine uh, reaches out to her. I think it's fa- a fairly new publication at this point, and and does an interview, a profile of of her. You know this. Um, oh right. This fascinating, uh, pretty young woman who's Guinness is now saying is the smartest woman, and they run a sidebar in which readers ask her tricky questions, and she answers. And the readers of Parade love it. They are crazy about it, and so suddenly she has a column in Parade, and this is why we had never heard of her. Because she was just kind of a divorced mom uh, with with smart New York in a smart New York set, right? Who suddenly was the world's smartest person because her friend made a phone call and didn't really have a job exactly, but now was right. a national columnist. When she gets asked in interviews about her job, she is a writer, and I think she she hasn't published anything. I think she's got a couple of plays. Once she becomes Marilyn Vosavant, the world's highest IQ person. Then she can get a book deal and write about smartness and smart subjects. But at the time, no. Uh, and uh, people love her. She does she's, does TV interviews. You can see her being interviewed by Letterman or Joe Franklin. She's um, extremely charming yeah. and believable. Yeah, I watched the Letterman appearance, and she's, she's really glammed up. She's, you know, she's dressed to the nines. And she has a, a real kind of mid eighties look. She has, you know, this raven jet hair and these kind of these very almost gaunt porcelain features. In in the language of the time, she's a 
Connie Selica or mm. a, a Veronica a Lilith. Veronica Hamill. Yeah, she's <laughs> proto Lilith. She's you know Jennifer Connelly was kind of the last one of those, but there was a stretch of those into the and not not even Winona Ryder doesn't even qualify because no. you have because you have to be kind of forbidding. You have to have a kind of a. I guess Winona Ryder has the ghostly. She has more of a goth quality than a ghostly quality. Like you have to look like a Victorian ghost to pull off this this eighties jet black hair look. Yeah, it is a kind of Edward Gorey. <laughs> yes, exactly. Look, right? Yes, and she's very fun on. Also, the, she's kind of Vulcan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she doesn't have the bangs, but yeah, the the effect is Vulcan. She's um on the shows. She's she's charismatic and funny. She's a little bit off putting in a way that's very familiar to me because I had to go on these shows with very little TV experience. And there's a kind of thing where you can kind of tell she's a little too smart. She thinks she's a little too smart to mm-hmm. be there. She's trying to be smarter than the host instead mm-hmm. of instead of being a straight woman for Letterman. She's um she's maybe pre-written some jokes. Uh-oh. Nope. So doesn't know which camera to look at. Yeah, so she's not um but she does, you know, she she comes off well on TV even though maybe Letterman thinks she's a bit of an oddball cuz she comes off as a bit of an oddball. <clears throat> but she's a He's a real curiosity. There's a spread on her in Vanity Fair. Uh, one magazine calls her an intellectual bimbo, which doesn't really oh, seem dear. fair. Bimbo would seem to imply that she's not an intellectual. She, she has d- phenomenal hair. Great hair. Big, 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 big. Um, what you would call a mane of hair. She does have a lot of hair. She's the kind of woman who you would hope that in her 50s would have like kind of the Pepe oh, Le Pew streak. Sure, a white streak. Um, but that, you know, people can't get past great hair, I think, no matter who has it. Like, uh, great hair becomes... Like mine. Yeah, that's right. It becomes your calling card. <laughs> uh, she tells Letterman that she's dating five men. Okay. She, she doesn't... She has no natural... She doesn't have any kind of self-deprecatory instincts. Right. Um, I think later in life, she developed them, but... Does this, she seem self-aggrandizing a little? Is that part of her problem? I mean, she's a bit of a, you know... She's a bit of a regular girl, you know, ah, come on, Dave. But she doesn't appear, she doesn't appear to know how she comes off in certain ways. Right. Like her people, te- her people give her a, and maybe it's just her, gives her a, gives Letterman a, a, a dossier, which includes the fact that she's dating five men, including a talk show host, an airline pilot, and a comedian. And of course, Letterman is just immediate, this is catnip. He wants to know who the talk show host is, and she refuses to tell him, and the interview kind of goes off it's the rails Donahue. a bit. <laughs> Totally. She is a bit of a Marlo Thomas type. She is. But I think Phil and Marlo were already married. Yeah, no, they were together. At one point in the interview, Letterman says, well, what what are you doing uh, on my show? Uh, You can't be that smart. Like, why aren't you developing the the Jarvik 7? Right. Which was- The artificial heart. All in the news. The artificial heart that had just been implanted in Seattle dentist Barney Clark. Kept him alive for three or four months, although we now know that uh, I think he was asking to die- on the reg. Like it, it was not, this is terrible. Please kill me. Yeah, exactly. It was hooked oh. up. It was hooked up to some giant external compressor and it was keeping a guy alive. Whose, whose systems were all collapsing. But of course the scientists all want to keep this going as long as possible. Cause this is the first ever artificial heart implantation. Right. And the heart is not, so Barney Clark could not like get up and walk around the hospital. He's, He's attached to an iron lung. Yeah. It's a, just a heart. It's a, yeah, there's a, the external compressor is, is making the valves go. Right. Um, Not fun. And I was going to talk more about artificial hearts, but I got, I went down such a rabbit hole that I think this is now a separate entry. Yeah. Right? I think we should do a Jarvis. Well, artificial hearts. But anyway, it's funny that he mentions Jarvik 7 because within a year of her, of her talk show rounds, 
Robert Jarvik sees a spread on her in Vanity Fair and is quite smitten. Really? And he's, at this time, one of the most famous American scientists slash inventors. It's kind of a funny period in American history. I was thinking about this last night, reading about her bio. Maybe one of the novelties of Marilyn Vosavant is that she appeared in the mid-80s. Right. Now, we think of, you know, it's easy to think about you know, all the better living through chemistry stuff of the 50s and how we love scientists. And then the space age in the 60s, you know, produced a generation of engineers and engineering nerds. Right. And we still all loved our, our smart slide rule wearing Americans. And then in the 90s and 2000s, the internet age produces another set of these guys. I guess it starts with the personal computer, but really Bill Gates and then all his internet progeny like Zuckerberg and Bezos, they don't become icons until the very late 80s early 90s i feel like bill gates was still a seattle area joke bill gates was still an almost live joke well into the 90s oh really i mean wasn't he the richest man in the world by 1990 yeah but i don't think people were like he hadn't yet shaped a generation maybe yeah okay. I, I don't know it, there's a gap in the 70s and 80s where i don't want to say anti-intellectualism is running the country but but, I mean, Reagan's president. It's true. Who were the big stars? I mean, they were... Yeah, it was, it was the It was the advent of superficial media culture. Exactly. Like, the, our, 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 our public intellectuals are like Phil Donahue. Right. It, it was... It, the, the, the 60s and into the early 70s, people on talk shows were still novelists. Right. And Harvard professors and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, we're... All of a sudden, it's uh, Farrah Fawcett Majors. Yeah, it's uh, so she enters into, and I don't. I never had thought about this before wow, that, 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 she, that she appeared in a in a dumb lacuna. But I think right. you can kind of make that case, I guess. No, it's true. So you know, and that's why when Letterman has to think of a smart person, he says the Jarvik Seven because, yeah. like, that's the only scientist who's been on the cover of Time for years. Well, we think about it in music in MTV terms because right up until the advent of MTV, musicians could still be ugly. A lot of the great music of the 1970s, the stuff that we just think of as like the, the the greatest pop music of all time, if you look at the bands, they're like lumpen, bearded guys with, you know, kind of like scar, like fencing scars. I, and invite, I invite Futurelings right now to bring up a picture of Badfinger, <laughs> if, if they have, a, if such is available in their time. I mean, any of those bands, right? Because the only time as a fan you would see them is photographs in like cream magazine but then within a year of mtv there was a new phenomenon which was the beautiful pop star if you don't look like george michael pack it in yeah and and then and then what that eventually did was exclude all ugly people from music unless they were in metal and even in metal you had to be like skinny and ugly is this what killed rock well let's not get into that uh so, Robert Jarvik actually reach, calls her up and wants a date. Because oh, I, I would love to hear. Uh, can you to imagine? Figure out him calling his manager or some publicist and saying, like, give me Marilyn Vosavant's number. And, and Marilyn Vosavant is like, come on. But then, luckily, she finds a Vanity's Fair spread that has been done about him <gasps> where he poses bare chested. And suddenly, she finds out that he's an outdoorsman and he's a skier. And he's actually like, he's, so they're both like. Is he a Seattleite? No. He was at the University of Utah when he invented the artificial heart and later wound up in Manhattan. And they wound up in Manhattan together because they hit it off. 
they became, you know, long telephone conversations, I assume at night when it was cheaper, turn into uh, uh, finally somebody flies out to meet somebody in New York. And by just within, within, I think, like a week or so of their first meeting, they are engaged. So looking at Jarvik. Are you attracted? So when he does he make you horny, when baby? He's fir- when he is young and like invented the heart. He's super duper like surfer handsome. Uh, he's wearing a leather jacket in one of these photos. He's got like tousled crazy hair. And then some point along the way, and it may be that Marilyn Vos Savant did this to him, but all of his hair <laughs> fell out, and uh, and then he starts looking like a like a like a Bond villain, and now he really looks like a Bond villain. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, you definitely want, if you're going to try to date Marilyn Vos Savant, future links, this is, this is advice you want to know, do it before you lose your hair. Mm. Because, uh, apparently he was charming mm-hmm. as well as having a good chin, which he does. Mm-hmm. And they were engaged within a week. And in oh. 1987, they were married by no less than Isaac Asimov. Who gave? This really shows you the state of American public intellectualism it at the time. Really does. It's a Star Trek convention in a Ramada off the highway. Yeah. Like that's where. Like there's no glamorous uh, billion smart billionaires. It's just people who speak Klingon. Right, and they got invited to the Reagan and they uh, loved the, inaug- du- the the eighty four inauguration <laughs> with Mister T and Arnold Schwarzenegger. But they were reading Dune, and, uh, and Mister <laughs> T was not. <laughs> Uh, Asimov gives a, a, a charming speech about how for such a smart man and such a smart woman to get together is pure logic. This is a true marriage of the minds. It sounds like a, it sounds like they're getting married at a Star Trek convention. Leap blorp. Uh, he, uh, Jarvik gives her a ring made of gold and some kind of Pol- pyrolytic carbon or something. It's the same stuff that the vowels of his heart are made out of. Oh. Not, not his heart, but Barney Clark, the poor, poor Barney's heart. <laughs> Long dead Barney Clark. Hopefully it is not the same carbon <laughs> that has been extracted from poor Barney. Uh, but you know, it's a symbol of his, of his heart, I guess. Yeah. Ooh. And they immediately leave for six weeks in Paris. Uh, he brings all his physics books. She brings a personal computer at a time when the laptop didn't exist. She has to bring a big hunk and, uh, sure. Steamer, steamer, uh, trunk. What would it have been in 87? An Apple IIe or oh, something? Oh, no. She would have had a, uh, a Compaq. The original ones. Or the, what was the, what was the one I referenced it not very long ago? The TRS-80. No, the Altair. The, the, the Commodore 64. It's the Osborne. The Osborne? The, the Osborne was the first portable did, personal computer. Did Ozzy and Sharon invent no, a computer? A different but it, it, But it was like a little briefcase, like one of those typewriters? Well, not a little briefcase. Yeah, oh, it was the steamer trunk. It was the size of a of a IBM Selectric right. in the case. Yeah. So it was, but it was heavy. But when you opened it up, it was, it actually had a little screen, a screen the size of a piece of, like a peanut butter sandwich. It was, you know. <laughs> Five inches by five inches, but it was the most amazing thing any of us had seen. I, my my friend, uh, my best friend, his dad was a doctor, and he had an Osborne. There's a lot of fascination in our area with with big in our era with big clunky eighty cell phones. Yeah, but I feel like the big clunky early laptops are are going unrecognized as comedy fodder. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what. I mean, the Osborne his had two disk drives, two. Five inch floppy disk drives and probably had I don't know Ken sixty four k ooh yeah sixty four k means we, we had to upgrade to one hundred twenty eight k to run the better Zork games not right not Zork but um 
some of those Infocom games, you actually needed the 128K. Yeah, I bet. I bet it was. I bet it was upgradable to. No, no. You know what? I bet the Osborne was not upgradable to 128K. That's probably why we don't use them today. That's the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Marilyn and Robert Jarvik are now America's leading intellectual power couple at a time when smart people are kind of in the wilderness. They set up shop in a midtown penthouse, and they have their they have their smart set and their ballroom dancing classes. Oh. And, I and they're very happy. And I want to be friends with them. And by the late 80s, early 90s, she is getting hundreds of questions a day from Parade Magazine. Most of which, as you say, she answers correctly and succinctly. And really, like, pretty confidently. Yes. Um, she becomes front page news in the New York Times in 1990 when America becomes aware of the Monty Hall problem. Oh. Do you know about the Monty Hall problem? It's the uh, uh, behind door number one, there's a tiger, and behind door number two is a million dollars. Yes. And if you if the trolley runs over five people, it's better. <laughs> if, the tr- I, if the trolley runs over the tiger, you get the million dollars. I'm not, I'm not sure if I remember the whole Monty Hall problem. Imagine Hilbert Hotel, but it's a game show. This okay. is about to swerve into a math show for a second. Okay. So futurelings, you can, uh, I don't know, go make a sandwich. Go no, no, no. Math, math futurelings are, are leaning in. Uh, the Monty Hall problem is kind of a counterintuitive, a seeming paradox of, uh, of probability that's, that postulates. It's based on the old game show, Let's Make a Deal, in which there were three doors and often a good prize behind one and uh, a bad prize behind two. In this case, well, let's say there's a car and two goats. Also, right. let's say that you want the car. Right. Instead of one of the goats. When Mindy watches Let's Make a Deal, she always wants the donkey. She'd be like, I'd totally play for the donkey. I, re- I really want the donkey. <laughs> Do you think they really give you the donkey or is it just a prop that's what That's what I say. Honey, yeah. you're not going to get the donkey. Let me tell you. And she doesn't want me to be a game show insider. She, yeah, she doesn't yeah. want me to pop her. You're like, her Let me tell you how game shows Her work. donkey dream. She's like, the donkey's wearing a hat. The hat has flowers on it. I want the donkey. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the money hall problem suggests this hypothetical. Monty lets you pick one of the three doors. You pick one. He then opens a door and shows you a goat and says, do you want to switch from the door you picked to the other door that's, that's still closed? Right. Should you, should you choose? Should you, should, you, should switch? you switch? Should you switch? Right. And Marilyn says, absolutely. Before, you, you, were, you had a one out of three chance, and now you have a one out of two chance and that somehow um, improves your odds? Your odds actually go to two-thirds. So Marilyn replies, you should absolutely switch. Your odds will go from one-third to two-thirds. Whoa. All hell breaks loose. America comes unglued. Like, it's a surprise the Republic survived 1990. I feel like I remember this controversy. She gets, I think, tens of thousands of letters um, multiple PhDs, the deputy director from the Center for Defense Information, some the highest, DARPA. some yeah, some super high-ranking guy at the National Institute of Health. Uh, what about the guy that won the Fields Medal in uh, Goodwill Hunting? Did he write in? Yeah, fictional characters. <laughs> Russell Crowe from Beautiful Mind writes in. <laughs> um, she gets cred- and everybody ha- includes their credentials on the letter. Doctor blah blah blah. PhD. Member of oh, Mega. Yeah. Michigan State <laughs> University. Um, Megaron. Many of the, yeah, Megaron, right? <laughs> uh, many of the replies are along these lines. Maybe women look at math problems difficult, oh! differently. 
Snap. So it's clear that, uh, so what we're seeing is a foreshadowing of what all of American society would become in our era, which is a smart woman says something about science and gets mad. And 100,000 credentialed men appear out of nowhere to tell her she's wrong. So what happened was she went through a period where uh, all the smarty boys thought that she was kind of a novel advice columnist, smart girl. But I mean, when she and I think people over, shared my, and I don't, and I, I'm sure young me, maybe young me would have reacted differently to a Harvard guy in tweed and glasses. But the fact that it's a, a lovely woman giving all a glamorous woman, giving all this advice, I'm sure it's just catnip to here, these guys yeah, on, on some are. level. They right. can't be into this. And why did she end up with Jarvik instead of me? <laughs> But uh, but now she had she'd ventured over into some world of statistical probability, and that brought out the hounds. And they all talk about their degrees in statistics, and you can see why it it, it does it does not it's counterintuitive that yeah. the host opening a door should somehow change the odds. In fact, what you have to clarify the problem, and I believe the original wording makes Marilyn right. And her original answer, I think she mentions, the host has to know that he's opening an empty door. Right. The host is not opening a door at random. Monty knows where, where the Monty knows where one of the goats is, and once you pick a door, he or he, he has to know where both of the goats are. Once you open a door, he picks a, a goat door to open. Right. It's not just a, Sch- a Schrodinger's goat. <laughs> right. He has chosen a place where he knows a goat, and the, that the whole problem hinges on that. He has to know, and if he knows and he does so, and every time this problem happens, he's showing you a goat then your chances actually go up. And, and Marilyn has to write three subsequent columns trying to persuade America. And it's easy to do just by listing out all the cases. Right. Goat, car, goat, 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 car. You know, list all the cases on the door. And you can see that at first you have a one in three chance. And then later you have a, a two. two out of three chance. Wow. You, the, the, uh, an empty, uh, one whole goat has been removed. And the goat is either behind your door. And if your door has a one third chance... It's not that one. It's got to be two-thirds for the other door. Right. Um, the best way to imagine it is this way. Imagine there's no longer three doors. Imagine there's a hundred doors. Right. And the host, again, opens all but one. The host opens 99 blank doors. Do you switch? Well, 90, 98. 98. 98, 98 yeah. yes. Yeah. Absolutely you do, right? Right. Yeah, right. Because, yeah, of course. You had a one in a hundred chance. Before and now you had a one in a hundred <laughs> chance. Now there's like only two doors left. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, you know, let's say of the 99 doors, he only opens 50 of them. You still do it, right? Like you can kind of, you, sure, through you these means, back. you can kind of work people. And she does, she turns this into a little experiment. She runs a series of columns walking America through the Monty Hall problem. And at first, her mail was 8%, r- running 8% in her favor. And she gets that to 56% of her mail is now like, oh, you're right. Like, I, I believe you about Monty Hall. Oh, Parade Magazine is loving this, though. Parade Magazine is front page news in the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, 35% of uh, people with who tout their credentials, you know, 35% of people with, with master's and doctorates believed her at first. She gets that up to, the mail starts running 71% in her fa- if favor. If they have numbers after, or letters after <laughs> Exactly, them. yeah. She doesn't verify all of them. So this actually works, but not everybody. Somebody writes her and says, I still think you're wrong. There is such a thing as female logic. Oh, so they're not even trying to counter her argument. They're the, just... This is a woman. Right, they're just You gonna can't gonna argue with women. Diss her no matter what. Right. 
And it, you oh, can, you, and that's the other thing. You can't argue with women. Oh boy! Like, <laughs> what, what what do women want? Am I right? It really you start to see the beginning of kind of a sequel of this mansplaining, which is the cognitive dissonance that arises in a population when they are told that the facts are against them. Right. And to some, you know, Marilyn is able to convince a big chunk of America. She goes from 92% against her to 44%. But 44%, even when given multiple proofs of the right numbers, will still say, "Uh uh-uh, I had my priors and I am just going to get more and more stubborn. And what's more, I'm going to find other people who are similarly stubborn and form a community. Well, this sounds like me and MSG. (laughs) I absolutely refuse. My sister and I were talking about it the other day. She was like, I can feel MSG. And I said, yeah, me too. Ken, Ken Jennings says we can. She was like, Ken Jennings doesn't know anything. And I said, I already knew that. You guys should make t-shirts. And this is what happens to Marilyn. Uh, Marilyn is wrong becomes a popular website run by a, I think, Portland, Oregon man named Herb Wiener. You know it was a man, but oh, did, you sure. know, did you know he was named Herb Wiener? <laughs> you, you probably did. You know, the thing is, her name is still Vos Savant, <laughs> and his, his name, name is Herb Wiener. It's Weiner. <laughs> uh, he starts a website called Marilyn is Wrong, and through the 90s, continues to nitpick about all her columns. Now, all of her columns, not just uh, the Monty Hall problem. Uh, you know, this is her first appearance on the stage as a wrong intellectual. Right. And I think the label sort of sticks even once she kind of brings her readership around. Right, I see. Sure. Uh, and there's another one. Around the same time, she gets, uh, I think twice she gets stung by the boy-girl paradox. And she gets this right. This is more or less, uh, a couple has two children, uh, at least one is a boy. What's the odds? What are the, the odds? What are boy. the odds the other one's a boy? Of yeah. course the odds are one half, any given child. But it depends on how you say the problem. If it, When Marilyn is asked, it's very specific. It's, um, Pet shop owner is washing two puppies. Gets a uh, a pet shop owner has two puppies. Gets a phone call. Hey, are the puppies male or female? Uh, I'm looking for a male. He yells out to the assistant washing the dogs. Hey, is one of those dogs a male? Guy checks one dog and says yes. What are the odds that both are male? Now, in fact, it is not one half. Once you know that one is male. Sure. Once you know that some one of the puppies is male, the options are girl, boy, boy, girl, boy, boy. So now there's three outcomes. And the odds that the other one is a male is now one third if you ask the question right. Um, And of course, it depends on things like, is the, has this family been chosen at random? Is the person checking, selecting at random? Does he say at least one or does he say exactly one? Does the person checking know how to identify a boy puppy? Has he ever seen a dog penis? Or is he just making up an answer because he's embarrassed? Is he just trying to see if the puppy's good at uh, statistics? Right. Uh, So Marilyn gets this right. And again, people in middle America goes nuts. No, it's not one third. We all know the odds of a child are about one half. And she has to do multiple. She gets all these. She gets these right. Um, But that does not stop. Sites like MarilynIsWrong.com or whatever from putting up long explanations of how she has missed many subtleties of the problem. Because, you know, again, her editor is working her down to one-paragraph answers. But she's not – she's never booted out of mega. Oh, no. I mean, her answers, by and large, are fine. She does – occasionally, she will make a mistake. Like, there's – some of them are just very mathematically abstruse. There's a famous case about somebody asking, hey, if it takes these two people this long to do a project together and they have to do it separately – and she gets most of the math right, but she neglects a detail, which is that 
if they're now doing it separately, when one finishes, they can't do it collaboratively once one finishes or something. Like you have to take into account a second period of time when the faster one is finished and the other one has not. Can that person jump in and do the first task? So she misses a subtlety, and this is the kind of thing that the t-shirt wearers are going nuts about. Because she, among a certain set, she is famous as a false prophet. Right. Um, I can answer that question. You know, my friend Kevin, whose dad had the compact, his grandfather used to say that one boy can do the work of one boy. Two boys do the work of one half of a boy. And three boys do no work at all. I don't know if Marilyn took that into account. This is some old German wisdom. What if at least one of the Germans is a boy? You know at least one of the Germans is a boy. Okay. What are the odds the other two are working? What are the odds that any work will get done? Uh, another one that she gets wrong, and this is this one she should have known better. She gets asked, what's up with the... Because she gets asked, out, insofar as she has a field, she gets asked stuff outside her field all the time. Sure. People are writing about their love life. Somebody keeps hearing about margin of error in political polls and wants to know what that means. How do you know how far off the poll is? I loved those answers. I when, whenever she uh, whenever she took one from left field, I always those were my favorite parts of her column. Sure, it's it's like listening to an omnibus episode that has no math in it. Yeah, well, you know, hundred percent better. A, a poorly researched omnibus. Yeah, right. uh, and in this case, she makes the mistake of saying, "Well, they've done enough polls in the past that they know how much it could possibly vary." So her, her suggestion is that they use past results to predict how likely these answers are. And in fact, no, margin of error has a very specific statistical um, definition, which just comes from, which you derive from the size of the sample size. And maybe variance, I can't remember. Anyway. Another, another chink in her armor. She's never, she's, she's not perfect, but she's overwhelmingly right, despite the fact that a lot of her readers get the idea, develop the idea that she's a flake who says you can teleport goats and dog penises with your mind. Huh. And we all know that's not right. Um, and so it's, it's a preview of America today where people kind of find a community that shares their ignorance and become able to take pride in it instead of actually wondering, is the earth true? Is the earth flat? Right. Or, you know, is the earth round? The Do, earth is true. Is the earth true? Does I'm, the earth exist? I'm going to fight for that. You know, is the earth round? Do vaccinations work? Um, should I wear, should my barbershop open during a pandemic? You know, it's a, it's an early taste of an internet America where these people can find each other immediately and create whole counties, whole seas of ignorance. So what happens? Do, to Maryland? Do, do these communities survive? Are there still anti-Maryland Voss Savant communities? I did not try to see if the Maryland is wrong guy is still at it in the year of our Lord 2020. Because she's still at it, right? Yes. Uh, Parade Magazine exists. Um, the Maryland is wrong website has not been updated since 2007. Oh, Herb Wiener. Something happened. Oh, wow. He's got an awful lot of columns here in his Maryland is wrong uh, oh, he's got ones where she's wrong. He's got some where she's correct but incomplete. He's got a whole section called You Be the Judge. <laughs> Worthy of discussion even when Marilyn may not be wrong. Uh, the Who Slimed the Psychiatrist error of July 2007 still says new on it. So I'm going to say this site has not been updated right. in, uh, in well over a decade. Marilyn is mistaken about the clouds. 
Marilyn confused by square feet versus feet square. What's your thinking? Does a male columnist get this kind of reaction? Uh, from the herb, herb and uh, the herbs and the wieners of the world. I mean, well, we have one sitting here. Did Ken Jennings ever? Is there is there a website called Ken Jennings is wrong? I no, I, I was publicly wrong so many times on TV. I definitely get people taking great joy in telling me when they knew things that I didn't know. And you and I know that we, you know, we're two white men who get plenty of pedantic corrections. Oh boy! So it's it's not. Well, and I'm not even the uh, like verified as one of the smartest people in the world. But there's no T-shirts. Goes unverified. There's no T-shirts about what a what what a dingus I am and how I'm overrated. Well, let's see. Ken Jennings <laughs> is wrong. T-shirt. Uh, let's see. Well, the first thing that comes up is James Holtzauer <laughs> Jeopardy. Ken Jennings funny T-shirt. What does that look like? Is it funny? Uh, it just has a picture of James on it. <laughs> there was a long time where if you did a Google image search for my name, it was page after page of James Holtzauer's <laughs> face grinning back at me. And it's very upsetting to me. I feel like the universe has been restored more recently. Yeah. No, but I but I'm guessing that this is very uh that this is a very distinct phenomenon. Um because Herb Wiener isn't mad about the facts. He's mad about Maryland. Yeah, he doesn't say America's understanding of common statistical paradoxes is wrong. Right. Yeah. That, well, for one thing, it wouldn't fit on a shirt. And that concludes Marilyn Voss Savant or Marilyn Voss Savant, depending. Schrodinger's Voss. Entry 1403.PR1401. Certificate number 51993 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you still measure IQ, in the unlikely event that you judge correctness based on gender. And we should go on the record as saying we don't do either of those things. IQ is an extremely blunt instrument right? that just straightjackets anyone who knows their results, good or bad. However, SAT scores are how uh, your success in life should be measured. Yes. Your potential in life, and you should be sent to the the, pro- the proper school. Because I don't know my IQ. My IQ is a goat, but my SAT score is a car. And, right. and I know it's good, and therefore, we stand by it. That's right. Ride that lightning. But if your SAT score is better, I don't have a perfect SAT score. If you do, you can replace me as host of this program. Oh, that's the thing. Anyone that has a perfect uh, SAT score is a fluke. Those people aren't that smart. Oh, it's no. That's just a, the ones who missed one or two. That that proves that you were really right. in the trenches. That's exactly right. The sixteen hundred people all had the answers written on their number yeah, two they pencils. Just, they, they took uh, they took those practice exams over and over until they figured out the the trick. They took the test on the East Coast and then hopped in a Concorde and flew to California and <laughs> took it again. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Why don't we join Mensa? You and me. As a bit? Yeah, as a bit. <laughs> like for the show? Yeah, just sign up for Mensa and nothing, see what happens. I have nothing against Mensa people, by the way. I'm sure there I are hang an out awful with, lot of Mensa people listen to this show. I hang out super with mad. so many Mensa people. And it really is, uh, you know, it really is more fun to talk to smart people. Sometimes yeah. it's annoying to talk to smart people who want you to know they're smart people, but what are we, you going to do? We tease because we love. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram are archived at Ad Omnibus Project. He's at Ken Jennings. Very funny. I'm at John Roderick. Very into Star Wars. Just fine. Um, 
I am on Instagram at John Roderick. I get I get older and older every day. I look more and more like Ernest Hemingway now that my beard is long. But you're not turning into a Bond villain. You're not turning into Pierre Trudeau like Robert Jarvik did. So I really wish that I were turning into a Bond villain. I need more money. You can't be a Bond villain unless you are either really smart or rich. Question: Who is the kind of who is the best looking Bond villain? And not one of the femme fatales. Who is the sexiest pan-European man? Hmm. I'm going to say Drax from The Spy Who Loved Me. Drax is in... Uh, wait, Drax is or in Moonraker. Moonraker, right. I'm going to say Drax from Moonraker. I don't even know who I think. I mean, Telly Savalas is Blofeld at one point. Right. He's got a tough New York cop quality that makes him utterly miscast as Blofeld. I'm going to um, say... Um, Maybe one of those Timothy Dalton Bonds. Uh, just some, a, had, some Latin American drug lord yeah, type? Yeah, just had some, somebody that was, that was good looking. I don't remember. I stopped watching those. So John thinks Joe Don Baker is the best looking Bond villain. Now we know. Oh, maybe. Um, so you're saying no femme fatale, but does that include... Uh, who was the one from the last Roger Moore one with the A View to a Kill? Grace Jones. Grace Jones. Is, was she a bad guy or a good guy? She's more a sidekick, but she's Christopher Walken's sidekick. Oh, Christopher Walken's very good looking. You think so? Don't you? Yes, but is he better looking than, say, Jonathan Price? Oh, Jonathan Price. I feel like Jonathan Price is good looking, but he's he's too slight. He's a little man. Maybe that's what I'm into. I'm going to put out a hanky, a hanky in my pocket that says, I just want to... I'm into little pu- guys with British accents. Pummel Jonathan Price. <laughs> um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, you can go on our f- Facebook group, The Futurelings, or uh, also other Futurelings groups on TikTok and, um, and FaceTime book and... Do a, Patreon find a Zoom things. meeting. Just find a pick, a pick up Zoom meeting I that wonder, you can uh, that you can hang out with Futurelings. I wonder all the Futurelings out there that we don't even know how to how to describe. You guys should be live watching the show together every week when it appears. Uh, it, you can support us at patreon.com slash omnibus project. We uh, we appreciate your generous support for the uh, making of the show in these in these increasingly difficult times. Advertising for podcasting is down because uh, it's late stage capitalism. It's one of the reasons we can't. Sorry. You know, it's all right. I was just opening the mail and it started beeping. Um, How do I stop this? It's another reason why we can't tax the rich. Uh, and then if you want to send us uh, things in the mail, you can send those things to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Now, it looks like someone has sent us a package that makes 80s. 8-bit music. Yeah, look what Monica from Austin sent us. Not just a picture um, of you and I being buddies. Oh. And presumably that's Monica listening from a safe social distance. She is. And look, we are, we are appropriately scaled in her drawing. You are two-thirds the size <laughs> I look of like, me. I look like a second <laughs> Zephod Beeblebrox head <laughs> popping out of your shoulder. But she also sent us in, in the wake of the... Prairie Schooners omnibus. She sent right. us a, uh, a throwback Oregon Trail handheld game. Whoa, uh, that looks like a looks like a, one of those Donkey Kongs. Yeah, uh, although it's uh, it's got a little tiny Osborne computer Show screen. Show it to me here. Show it to me. It looks like a but Mac Classic too. It's got a it's got a color screen, and but the it's kind of fake throwbacky. It's in this like fake future. Like the buttons say yes, no, and enter in kind of a fake 
science fiction yeah. font, yeah. like from a 50s sci-fi movie or something. And it, it looks, it's got a fake little disk drive, even. Play it. Uh, it turned off because I can only hit the enter button. Everything else is... Oh, covered under, in plastic. Covered in plastic. But thank you, Monica. Yeah. Thanks, Monica. This That's is, very cool and weird. This is delightful. Uh, we're, John's daughter is going to get dysentery soon. I like your drawing, too. And our friend um, Mark, the watercolorist, has sent us two new postcards. Mark, your work delights us. One is Prairie Schooners traveling correctly uh, horizontally instead of, you know, w- w- or 30 abreast instead of 30 in a row. Right. I like it. And Keep that dust out of your eyes. And this one is uh, Washing Bears. Oh. The Washing Bear is doing a Rubik's Cube. There's also a, a Tanuki, a Japanese a raccoon dog. So we, we can illustrate the difference. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it's got a prominent scrotum. Ken, Ken and I were just, um, uh, we call that a pooch. It's got it a prominent a pooch. pooch. Uh, Ken and I were just remarking on the uh, appearance of the albino raccoon. And how weird it looks without its little mask. It doesn't even look like a raccoon. But anyway, we'll put photos of these on the uh, Patreon page for subscribers at the image blog level to enjoy the difference between a raccoon and a tanuki. And John, I can tell you for a fact that at least one of these two raccoons is a male. Uh, What are the odds that the Rubik's Cube raccoon is? One out of three. Two out of three. One out of three. One out of three. Yeah. Yes, one out of three. One out of three. That's right. One out of three. Ken Jennings is wrong. As long as you don't look at it. If you look at it, you know which one has the pooch. I think the waveform collapses. Uh, this is uh, the kind of content that you can get if you if you uh, contribute to our Patreon at, uh, at any level. No, wait a minute. At any level, you get our uh, free addenda show. Yes, at any tier. Which comes out once a month. We... We uh, we take your letters and take them into consideration, and uh, and do an entire show where we go back and and review old episodes uh, that have been, where where mistakes or comments have been made. When mistakes we, have been brought to our attention. When we get omnibus is wrong T-shirts, right? We, uh, we like Marilyn. We own up. We air our dirty laundry. We issue corrections. We thank the self-proclaimed experts. Um, because they are paying us. So, donate to the show. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe fear may never come. We hope that Marilyn Vosavant is rightly recognized in your age as the leading pre-cataclysm public intellectual. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. If providence allows, and only in that case, only should providence allow, we will be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>